0: Our sermon passage today is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear my word to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple.
1: Thank you, Beth. Let's pray. To our triune God, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, we come again, trembling now, as we open your word to know you. You who are too wonderful for words. Even as we long for the day that we will know you in full, we praise you for how you have begun to reveal yourself to us, and that you have done so through your word and through the Son. We acknowledge and confess that, on our own, we would be lost and without hope because the sin in us runs so deep. And yet, even when it did so, Father, you sent Jesus to redeem and save your people from their sins. For that, we are and will be eternally grateful. And we ask that you would continue to search our hearts to the very depths. Root out any sin that is found there. Strip away anything in us that is not of you. Cleanse and purify us from all unrighteousness. Transform and renew our hearts and our minds and fix them on you. We pray especially for our pastor today as he is in Belarus working for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask for protection for he and the team, not just for their physical safety but as they engage in spiritual warfare, in seeking to take the light of your gospel into dark places. Please be at work in the hearts of all those whom they will encounter. Prepare the way for them. We pray for our brothers and sisters on the ground in Belarus who have been laboring for so long under such persecution. And we ask that you would continue to save your people and to raise up many vibrant Healthy churches to continue your work there. Show us how we might partner with them and serve them well. As always, we pray for this church, for these people, how very gracious you have been and continue to be to us. Help us to remain ever faithful to you, to steward this church well, and to love all whom you bring here. As we look to the cross, and beyond it to an empty tomb, may we be faithful and bold in our gospel witness to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, even especially our enemies. May we never tire of laboring to reap the fields that are white with harvest. And now I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. I am a woefully frail instrument. And I desire not one ounce of glory for myself, but that in every word that comes out of my mouth, you would be high and lifted up, exalted above every other thing. I pray for all who will hear this, that if they do not know you, please, Lord, save them. Break open hearts of stone, open blind eyes and deaf ears, and bring life For all who hear this and know you already, that you would continually, day after day, draw them ever nearer to you, that we would not be contented with anything less than intimate, unbroken fellowship with you. And for those who will hear, and who are hurting, who are grieving, who are broken, that you would be a gracious comforter beyond anything they have ever imagined, I pray that your word would sink deep roots into our hearts and bear much fruit in our lives, where our lives differ from and fall short of you. May we be the ones who are changed. It is in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit that we plead for these things. Amen. Good morning. If you have not already done so, please open your Bibles to the book of John. As you're turning there, go ahead and put your little ribbon at John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59 that Beth just read, because that's where we are going to spend the bulk of our time together this morning. Before we turn there, however, I would also invite you to turn first to the last two verses of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, because as you may have noticed, thanks to our snazzy new artwork, thank you Andy for that, we are starting a new series today that will last for the next seven weeks, and will take us all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And we're calling the series, I Am, seven statements by Jesus and about Jesus. And the reason for doing so is found in John chapter 20, specifically verses 30 and 31. So look at those verses with me. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So just as John is bold in stating why he has written this book, we want to be equally clear in saying our purpose and our hope for you over these next seven weeks. Because there are a couple of things in the book of John that are really giving shape to this series. First, John says, I have written this so that you, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, truly, that is the goal of the whole of the Bible, and especially the four Gospels. But sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that the Gospels are just biographies of Jesus' life. And to be sure, they certainly contain biographical elements of it. But they are written to help us see his work and his mission and what he has come to do. John, in particular, takes great pains to show us this, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ simply means anointed one. Contrary to popular usage, it is not his last name, and H is not his middle initial. Christ means anointed one, and John wants us to see that, and to see that he is the Son of God, and that you can believe in him and have eternal life. And I, I don't necessarily know where you stand with Jesus this morning, what you think about him, what your experience with him has been. But I can tell you my prayer for you, Jamie's prayer for you, this church's prayer, prayer for you is that over these next seven weeks, you would see revealed in the book of John a Savior who has overcome sin and death and everything that besets you and is calling you to himself, to a life that is more joyful, more glorious, and more permanent than anything you have ever imagined. Secondly, we're calling it I Am because one of the ways John structures his book to show us this is by recording seven different times during Jesus' earthly life and ministry where he would make an I am claim about himself. If you know your Old Testament, you know why that matters. But if you don't, that's okay. We're going to be talking a lot about it over this time. For now, suffice it to say that these seven statements are some of Jesus' clearest, strongest statements that he is God. And they push us to understand who he is, what he has come to do, and how we may have life in him. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the following seven statements from him. First, I am. Secondly, I am the bread of life. Third, I am the good shepherd. Fourth, I am the true vine. Fifth, I am the light of the world. Sixth, on Palm Sunday, I am the resurrection and the life. And seventh, finally, on Resurrection Sunday, I am the way, the truth. And the life. And as we begin to look at these, I would note that these put before us a very stark binary kind of choice. You see, for Jesus to have made these claims about himself will mean we can respond only in one of two ways. We can, like his disciple Thomas, fall down on our knees and claim, my Lord and my God. Or we must dismiss him completely. There's no middle ground between those two responses. That argument may sound familiar to you. It was made most famously by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It's called his trilemma. And I want to read it to you in full, but you need to remember Lewis would have read it Britishly. So it would have sounded much more convincing. So imagine I'm reading in a British accent. It'll be very persuasive to you as I do it. But here's Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet. And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Indeed, he didn't. So that is the choice before us all over these next seven weeks. And I pray that when it's all said and done, you too will gladly call him Lord and Savior. For now, though, let's turn to John chapter 8 and look at his claim to be I am. As you're turning there, since we're jumping into the series series in the middle of a book, I think it would serve us well to kind of set the table as to what's happening, what has brought us up to this moment. And if you're new to the Bible or you've never spent much time in the book of John, let me encourage you to spend some time over these next seven weeks reading through it in its entirety. You can read through the whole thing in two or three hours. And I'm not just trying to give you one more piece of busy work. But the book of John is, is near and dear to my heart. And maybe it's not good to play favorites with the books of the Bible, but God used this and the most influential pastor in my life when I was a college student to radically, radically expand my vision and understanding of Jesus to something more gloriously, incomprehensibly wonderful than, than I ever could have imagined. And I can say without hyperbole that it completely altered the course of my life forever. And so I hope this will do the same for you. But in chapter 8 in particular, we're dropping into the middle of a conversation that has been developing since chapter 7 at something the Jewish people called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. You can learn more about that in Leviticus 23, but for our purposes, this was a week long feast that took place in the fall after harvest. And it was a time of great celebration and rejoicing. And it was when the people would spend their week living in booths or tents, is what we would call them. And it was explicitly for this purpose. God said, this is why you will have this feast and do these things. He said that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God And as we will see, it is no coincidence that Jesus uses the occasion of a festival meant to remind people that God, the I Am, saved them to teach them about himself. This is very, very purposeful timing on Jesus' part. So since chapter 7, Jesus has been at the festival, and he's been teaching them about himself. As often happens when Jesus starts teaching, people have opinions. Some people start to wonder, is this the Christ? Do you hear what this man is saying? And starting to believe in him. Others... Chose to mock him. The Pharisees were pharisaical, and they tried to arrest him, as they often did, and failed. But they keep trying here. So we pick up in the midst of this conversation. And over the rest of chapter 8, Jesus is going to reveal three truths about himself and about ourselves that we would do well to ask the Holy Spirit to drive deeply into our hearts. And that should compel us to humility before him, to obedience to him, and worship of him. If you take nothing else away from our time together today, I would urge you to remember this. It's the main point of the sermon. Outside of Jesus, you are a slave to sin. But if you will abide in his word, he will and can set you free because he is God. I want to say it one more time because this matters. Outside of Jesus, you are a slave to sin. But if you will abide in his word, he will and he can set you free because he is God. As you might imagine, there's a lot going on behind that statement. So let's look at these things together. Point number one, if you're taking notes, is this Jesus will set you free if you abide in his word. Look at verse 31 with me. It says So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Remember, up until now, there had been a lot of public debate about who Jesus is. And immediately prior to this, in verse 30, it just said that many believed in him. So, what does he say to these people who are now claiming to believe in Jesus? He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is an enormously consequential statement. And it's going to shape the rest of this passage and our time together this morning. So let's take some time to look closely at what he's saying here. He says, if you abide in my word, three things will happen. What are they? You will truly be my disciple. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, given that all of this is contingent on abiding in his word, hopefully our very next question is, well, what does it mean to abide in Jesus's word? To abide in him is to continue believing Trusting in, obeying, acting on his word. Not just mentally saying, I I agree with that or I like that or I understand it, but that because these things are true, it's going to shape my whole life. I am going to trust in this. And over the course of our time this morning, he's going to contrast that with the actions of the people in this passage who don't abide in him. So if we are doing this abiding, what does he say becomes true? He says, You are truly my disciple. And a disciple is just someone who follows someone else. But notice the qualifier, truly. I think that is important and the emphasis here matters because Jesus is directly connecting the true reality of being his disciple with abiding in his word. Because there are many, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, who would say we're abiding in his word, but we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to say, well, I want to abide in his word if I agree with it. Or, I want to abide in his word if it, if it doesn't cost me too much. Or, I want to abide in his word if, if it's not going to cause me too much grief in, in living in this world, in this life. Now, probably we wouldn't just come right out and say it like that, but I wonder if we practically live it that way. One example, you may not know there's apparently an election this year about which people have opinions. <laughs> right this second, I don't care. I do care, but not for the purpose of this morning. But we, we, could, we could say this, and we could pick our favorite political hobby horse, and we could ride it until it just gave out and died. But I, I want I hit, to hit all corners here this morning, because if I wanted to challenge you from the political right, you guys get to be the political right this morning, I don't care if you are or not, you're just here today, I would say, are you abiding in Jesus' word in, in how you uphold the sanctity of life? Are you abiding in Jesus' word in how you regard the holiness of his commands about sexuality? Or in how you honor the goodness of his gendered, created order? Are you abiding in his word? Ah, then I'll come over here. I want to challenge you from the political left. And I would say, are you abiding in his word in how you care for the poor? And are you abiding in his word in how you love the stranger and the immigrant and the refugee? And are you abiding in his word in seeking racial reconciliation and all these things? And you know what? All of those are good things. And the Bible has much to say about them and when we come to those texts, we will talk about them. But what I want to point out today is we are so tempted to slap Jesus' sticker on our favorite political issue and just close our ears for the rest. We can't do that. Because what it says is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And I would challenge you that if there is nowhere in your life, in your politics, in your vocation, in your living, in your relationships, where Jesus' word is challenging you, where it's Pushing you, where it's refining you, then take care to consider, am I really abiding in it or am I just focusing on the things that I like? Because you're only truly his disciple if you abide in his word. And if you do, it says you will know the truth. And at first glance, that may not seem like that big a deal, but consider the implications of what Jesus is saying here. First, that there is truth that can be known. Now, for many of you, that ranks right up there with the sky is blue on the level of profound statements. But I assure you, in our current age, the idea, the belief that there is objective truth outside of ourselves is radically countercultural. And I hope, excuse me, that it is very comforting for you because truth is an anchor in this world that is more and more shaped by what's called liquid modernity is. Everything changes. Nothing feels certain. Nothing feels solid. It vanishes into air. We would say, no. There is rock-solid, unshakable truth. And not only is there that kind of truth, he also says, you can know it. It's not out there, mysterious and hidden. It's, it's, it's here. And he tells us how to know it. He says, abide in my word, and you will know the truth. And then you might ask, well, what what is this truth? Which is just slightly the wrong way of approaching it. Because the question is, who? Who is this truth? The answer, of course, is Jesus. And we're going to see that all over the book of John, including in just a moment. But for now, if we know the truth, then what? It says, the truth will set you free. What an extraordinary promise. But, But free from what? That's the exact question they asked Jesus. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say you will become free? Well, that's a strange response. We are the offspring of Abraham. Why why would they say that? We're going to come back to it in just a minute, but you cannot overstate how strongly identified these people had become historically and culturally with being the children of Abraham. It shaped so much about them. But they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. It's because their vision is so limited. It's so narrow. It's so small. They look around at their lives and they can't Imagine that they would be enslaved. So Jesus' promise to set them free makes little sense. You know, if you don't know you're a slave, being set free really doesn't help all that much. But um, they ask him in response to that, how is it that you say you will become free? And this is the question that Jesus will answer over the course of the rest of the chapter. But before we go there, I want to bridge the gap because I think it's unlikely anybody here today is relying on being a child of Abraham for the freedom. Anybody that's... Let's it. no, I thought not okay, so two questions I want you to think about in our time together this morning is first, do you think you need to be set free? Do you see that in your own life? because maybe you would say it this year, this way I've always gone to church I've never been enslaved, or ah, I'm basically a decent person I'm not that bad I've never been enslaved or I mean I just do you really think God cares that much about my little day-to-day life? Do you really think that matters so much? I've, I've never been enslaved. Whatever your stance there, and even if you've begun to recognize or realize that, then the second question we're confronted with is this. Do you believe that Jesus can set you free? And it's those two things we're going to consider as we keep going, because our second point is this. Jesus must set you free Because you are a slave to sin. Look back at verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is why they and we need to be set free because we are slaves to sin. Because he says everyone who practices sin, which includes every single person, in every single place, at every single time. There is no exception to this. All have sinned, the word tells us. And not only that, in practicing sin, it says we become slaves to sin. And this is Jesus' answer to the objection that they've never been enslaved. Because as is always his way, he's focusing on the heart. But buried in this also is the reality is sin is something with which we should never dally. It is not to be or trifle with, because sin is always enslaving. As the old saying goes, sin will what? Always take you further than you wanted to go. It will always cost you more than you wanted to pay, and it will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And I imagine if you've been alive for more than about five seconds, you've seen that in your life. Sin is deeply enslaving, and in the end, if Jesus does not kill it, it will kill you. To paraphrase Puritan pastor John Owen, So what is to be done about our slavery to sin? Is there hope? Or is all lost? No, Jesus tells them that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You remember a moment ago when Jesus said that the truth would set them free? Well, here, he clearly identifies himself as that life-giving, freedom-giving truth. And I love that this is God's answer to that and how theologian Don Carson puts it. He said, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Well, that is free indeed, to do what is right and to enjoy doing what is right. Now, you would think that Jesus, having offered them this freedom, the response would be great joy, or how can we have this freedom? You would think that, oh, but you would be so wrong, so very wrong, because what happens next is what I think is the second greatest verbal showdown in all of Scripture. Pride of place still goes to Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 19 when he mocks them and says, your God is asleep or using the bathroom. Who knows? But that's for another day, not today's. Today, we see this escalate pretty quickly here. You go from them saying that Abraham is their father to Jesus saying, nah, he's not. And then they respond with what I'm fairly comfortable is the oldest your mama joke in history, And I'm going to leave it there for little ears. But he who has ears, let them hear. Read verse 41. To which Jesus says, All right, your father is the devil. Ooh. And they come back with, Yeah, well, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. I mean, because where do you go from there, right? Like, you kind of topped out at your father is Satan. Um, but they do this. Now, kids, my kids, grown-ups, all... That does not give us license to go out and insult one another to help understand the Bible better. I assure you, you will fail. Jesus can do it because he's the son of God and does it without sin. But as funny as this is, and it is funny, he has something to teach us here. Because look back over verses 31 through 41. I'm not going to read them all. But the people keep falling back on being Abraham's children as their defense. Because that's where they're placing their hope. Now, again, if you're new to the Bible, or maybe it's been a while since you've been to the Old Testament, and all you remember is your Sunday school felt board, which, praise God for Sunday school felt boards, whiteboards, whatever we have now. um, This may seem an especially strange thing to you. Why do they keep saying this? Well, to get it, you have to understand that Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. God chose him and promised to make him a great nation and to bless all nations through him. And you can read all about this in Genesis 12 and 15. But over the 2,000 years that passed from Abraham's day to the day of this conversation, many Jews had come to rely solely on the fact that they were Abraham's children to secure their standing with God. Like nothing else mattered. We belong to Abraham, we're done. For us, it would be similar to saying, well, I've always belonged to this church or my family has always belonged to this church. Therefore, clearly I'm okay with God. But is that so? No. Look at verses 39 and 40. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Watch there. Jesus just persistently pushes back and, and rebukes this idea by showing them that while they may be physical descendants of Abraham, which he acknowledges in uh, verse 37. If they were truly Abraham's offspring, they would act like him. They would do what he did. Which is what? What did Abraham do that was so important here? Well, to understand that, we need to look very briefly at Genesis chapter 15. I want you to turn there because I want you to see this because it matters so much. Genesis chapter 15, where God has promised Abraham a son in his very old age and that he would be the fulfillment of God's promise to make him a great nation. And then look at verse 6. What does it say? says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So, when God spoke the truth to Abraham, Abraham believed God. By contrast, back in John 8, in verses 40 and 41, Jesus shows the people that when he tells them the truth about God, instead of believing him, they seek to kill him, like their father, the devil. So do you start to see now? Do you see how this argument that Jesus had 2,000 years ago begins to relate directly to us? Because we're faced with that very same choice. Will we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That he will do the things he says he will do, or will we not? Because one is the path of God and of life and of light. The other is Is the way of the devil and death and lies. And I'm not trying to be unnecessarily divisive in saying that, but Jesus himself makes that exact contrast in verses 44 through 47. In fact, he makes it very starkly and ties it directly to their refusal to believe him. In verses 44 and 45, he says, You don't believe the truth, and you're trying to kill me, which is just like the devil, who is a murderer from the beginning and who is by his very character a liar. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, He says it again in verses 46 and 47. If you belong to God, you will hear. And by implication for verse 45, believe his word. If you don't belong to him, you will not. That's a sobering thought. That that hit heavily on me this week. Because if we're his, we're going to hear and believe. If we're not, we won't. So what will we do with this choice, Redeemer? And what is it that Jesus wants us to know and believe? Well, that takes us to our last point, which is this. Jesus can set you free because he is God. Look at verse 51 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Before now, he has told the people that they are enslaved to sin but if they will believe in him, he will set them free. That could mean a lot of things, but now he makes clear that this freedom he is offering is that of eternal life, of never seeing true death. And we know from elsewhere in the word that the wages of our sin is death. So when Jesus offers this freedom from the slavery of sin, he doesn't just mean in this life. He means that the reign and tyranny of death has been ended. And as before, you would think, this would be such a moment of joy. The people saying, please, sir, please give us this life. But they remain spectacularly tunnel-visioned, focused only on what is right in front of them. And to, them, to this, they say, well, now we, we, we know you're a demon. You're, you're a crazy person, is what you are. Because you see, they understand that these cannot be the claims of a merely moral teacher. No, there's much more going on here. To their credit, they do ask the right question. And it's the one with which we are all confronted. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you to demand and ask these things of us? And it's not an unreasonable question. Because as Lewis noted, these are not mild claims capable of being ignored or swept under the rug. Then look at verses 58 and 59. And although it's coming at the very end, this is the point on which everything else turns Because what is his answer to their question? Just who do you say you are, Jesus? Before Abraham was, I am. Now if you don't know your Old Testament, feel the weight of this statement. And it's okay if you don't. But you should get an idea of it by their response because they picked up stones to throw at him and kill him. Clearly he's just said something that matters and he did because here, he is making an explicit, unmistakable claim to be God. Not just any God, but the one true God whom the Jews have known from the beginning. Now, I am the furthest thing in the world from a Greek scholar. Thankfully, we are blessed with an abundance of them in each service. We have one. Josh, thank you for being here today. If I get this wrong, please wave and like stop me. So, don't let me do that. But this, this matters. We need to get this. Um, when Jesus says that here, that I am the phrase that translates to it is egoimi. And it's exactly how God began to identify himself in Exodus 3 to Moses in the burning bush when he said, I am the I am. So he is claiming to pre-exist Abraham, who lived more than 2,000 years before this. And despite the textual gymnastics some people try to do to get him to say something else here, to mean something else, it is so clear that he is without question claiming to be God. Do you see now why there's no middle ground? That's a claim that demands a choice from us. But maybe, maybe you're still looking for the middle ground. Maybe you think, why does it matter? Why is this so important? Does it really, really matter that much what we believe about whether or not Jesus is God? Aren't we just kind of splitting theological hairs? Aren't we just being unnecessarily divisive? Can't I just get back to living my life and, and loving people? And you know what? I, I want to take that question seriously because it does matter that we understand that We're not just picking things for the sake of picking them because we're tempted maybe to think this is just an academic debate when in reality, this is of the utmost seriousness. This is, in a very literal sense, a matter of life and death. What do we believe about Jesus? So if you were here back in May when I preached in part of Hebrews 2, we looked at how important it was to know that Jesus is fully human. Well, now we want to flip that coin and see why it matters that Jesus is fully human. God, we could spend week after week after week reflecting on the gloriousness of this truth. But I just want to focus on two reasons that I think are most directly pertinent to this text today. First, it matters that Jesus is God because only God can forgive sins. Whomever else our sin may hurt, whatever damage it may cause, we must never forget that it is first, foremost, and ultimately against a holy God. And it is He whose forgiveness we truly deeply need. So if Jesus is not God, then our sins cannot be forgiven, and God would be unjust to do so. If Jesus is not God, then our enslavement to sin cannot be ended by him, and his promises are false. Second, it matters that Jesus is God, because only God can put an end to death and bring life. We die because of sin, but it is God who holds the power of life and death. So if Jesus is not God, then we cannot be freed from the tyranny of death. If Jesus is not God, then we are without hope. If Jesus is not God, then death is assuredly our end. But as we looked at the beginning of our time this morning, the purpose of John's gospel, the purpose of this series, the reason we get up every single day is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing have life in his name, life eternal in his name it matters because if enslavement to sin is our problem and death and hell are the end of that enslavement, then I assure you, we want, we need something so much more than a good moral teacher. We need the one who is I am. We need the one who can and has conquered death. We need the one who can and has set the captive free. We need Jesus. I realize we've covered a lot of ground this morning, so I want to step back quickly as we close and just strip down exactly what's happened here. Because in the midst of this tense, heated, 2,000-year-old argument, Jesus either made one of the most insane or most profound claims that's ever come out of a human mouth. He said that everyone who practices sin, which again is everybody, is a slave to that sin. And the only hope of freedom that we have is abiding, believing, trusting, resting, walking in His Word. But if we do that, we'll be freer than we ever imagined. And what is this Word that He gives us? That He is God, and in Him is life. But there it is. The choice before us could not be more clear. What will you do with this man who claims to be God? The hard news is that apart from Jesus, we truly are slaves to sin. And there's not one single thing we can do about it in our own strength. However, the freedom-granting, life-giving, gloriously good news is that he has said, if you will believe in him, believe in his word and the truth of who he is and what he has done, and you will be saved and set free forever." If you're here this morning and you've been fighting these chains, this slavery, this sin your entire life, and you've given up the fight as, as just a hopeless, lost cause, if you feel that, that soul-deep, bone-weariness, if you hear the lies of the devil that this promise is not for you, that you're too sinful, you're too wicked, then friend, hear me. Jesus bids you repent of your sin, believe in him and be free. As long as you draw breath, hope is not lost. You are not too far gone. There's somebody that needs that this morning. I don't care what has happened until this very moment. If you are still breathing, you are not yet lost without hope. Repent and believe and be saved. Also, if you are here this morning and you have been set free and you know that, you know what Jesus has done, but you are still carrying those chains, you think they will never come off. They will never go away. And you hear the lie of the devil that you're a fraud, that no one else is struggling but you. Then, friend, you also hear Jesus who bids you to continue believing and trusting in him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Hope is not lost. You are not forgotten. You are loved by the God of this universe. You are loved by every person who is here. We love you. And you are not forgotten. It's good to know because Jesus is not a liar. He is certainly not a lunatic. He is the risen and the reigning Lord of all. And he will save and he will free and he will come back for his people. That's good news. And so one way we remember and celebrate this every week here at Redeemer is by taking the Lord's Supper together. And if you're new here, if you're just a guest today, we're so glad that you came. We do this when we gather in remembrance of and imitation of Christ and obedience to his commands. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian who has professed faith in Christ, you've made it known to the church, we would invite you to partake of this meal with us. But if you're here today and you don't yet know him, we would ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. Because there's no magic in these things. But Scripture tells us that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord and will eat and drink judgment on themselves. So for that reason, I urge you, as the elements are being passed, to spend this time in prayer asking the Lord to examine your heart, to reveal any sin of which you need to repent, and to prepare you for this act of worship.